Anyone who calls upon his name, they'll be saved. Isn't that the glorious thing? I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of this whole gospel message, is that anyone, doesn't matter who you are, if you call upon the Lord, he is faithful to save, to move from death to life. Every single person, all of us, without exception, dead in sin. That's our natural state. We start out already condemned. But God, by His grace, loved us so much that He gave His Son Jesus to make us alive. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 is a verse that I think a lot of times I have assumed we all know. But it's our memory verse for today because I fear many of us don't. Or we think we do and we haven't really thought it through. God so loved the world, the world that He created, created for perfect intimacy with Himself, created that His glory might be revealed in His creation. He created us for a relationship with Him. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He did it. We didn't earn it. It was His grace. God gave His only begotten Son, His unique Son, the only Son, who is part of the Father innately. Now we recognize that in the Trinity, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. There's no division. But in these persons of the Godhead, God has revealed Himself, the invisible God made visible in Jesus Christ for us. He is the fullness of the deity. And by His grace, those of us who have been made alive in Christ, we're united with Him. We are His body. We are the fullness of the One who is the fullness of God. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, anyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. It does not matter who you are or where you come from. All who come to Jesus are saved. Everyone. No one who comes to Him is ever cast away. No one is not allowed to come. Everyone. Equal at the foot of the cross. He gave His Son to die in our place, to be the sacrifice for our sin, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Death is our natural state. We're born physically alive and spiritually dead. But in Christ, when we take hold of that grace by faith, when we by trusting Him, embracing the gospel, unwrap the gift that He has given us freely. And we don't have to live in that death anymore. We don't have to perish and spend eternity separated from God as objects of His wrath. But instead, in the Son, through faith in the Son, we have eternal life. Somebody's got to say amen here. Amen. Now listen, this is the glory of the gospel. It is open to all for the praise of God's glorious grace to us. So when we see Paul, <coughs> excuse me, when we see Paul writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, there's, he doesn't have some error that he's correcting. Most of the letters that he writes seem to be correcting some sort of error or guarding against some sort of error that's coming. That's not what he's doing here. He's rejoicing 
in God's great purpose, displayed in His people. He is telling them, man, this is so awesome that I can't shut my mouth about it. I can't stop praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. To Him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, to Him be power and glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. This is the tone of Paul's letter. He is fired up and excited. And if, if we love Jesus, knowing that He loved us first, then when we embrace that, when we see that He died for us, is there any other logical thing to do than to live for Him? To walk in this newness of life that we receive when we die to our sins because He died for our sins. And we now, for the first time, are free, truly free spiritual agents, able to choose to please God. We can't do that until we're in Christ. In this third chapter of the letter, Paul speaks of God's mystery being revealed in Christ and declared by Paul, speaks of his own ministry. As he does it, he kind of sidetracks himself. I can identify with Paul. I'm pretty good at sidetracking myself. What was I talking about? Always. Paul starts out by introducing himself again, right? So they know who's saying this, but he says, because of everything we just said in chapter 2, because of this reality that we are God's workmanship, we're saved by grace, but God is working out this masterpiece in us, not us doing it. The painting doesn't paint itself, but the master artist is putting us on the canvas. We, the church, are the canvas of his glory. As he pours out his grace to us and shows the world what he is like through us. He says, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner, I'm a prisoner for this gospel. I'm a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he kind of catches himself in his own thought. He'll come back to that in the second half of this chapter, and we'll talk about that next week. But as he encounters this thought, man, I, I, I'm a prisoner for the gospel. and I'm a prisoner for you. He sits for a minute. And he opens up what it means. What exactly am I talking about in this ministry that has landed me in prison, that has caused me to suffer? As we walk through this, our core reality for today is that God's master plan is revealed in Christ and displayed in His church with present suffering but lasting glory. A little longer than I normally would want to write this out, but Ride with me on this. Let's, let's think it through again. God's master plan is revealed in Christ and displayed in His church with present suffering, but lasting glory. Now, as Paul is doing this, the, the whole section here is couched in the idea of his suffering. Notice in, in verse 1, he points out that I'm a prisoner. I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. And at that point he interrupts, but then jump ahead to verse 13. He finishes his thought here by saying, I ask you therefore, in light of everything he says in between, not to be discouraged. Because of my sufferings. What sufferings? He's in prison. He's, he's on house arrest in Rome, but he's a prisoner for the Lord. Don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. And don't be discouraged because of my sufferings, understanding that they are for you. I'm suffering for you. We'll see what that means in just a few minutes. 
these sufferings that I'm enduring right now, the hardship that I'm facing and persecution for the gospel, this is your glory. He's encouraging them then not to be discouraged, but to be encouraged amid suffering. To be encouraged amid suffering. What we see in what Paul is talking about here and, and throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, it was true of Israel, the world, the world opposes the gospel, but the glory outweighs the cost. The world opposes the gospel, but the glory outweighs the cost. I fear sometimes, I wanted to make sure that we don't miss this, and I think I did in my first few hundred <laughs> attempts at going through this. I exaggerate, it wasn't a few hundred. But as I was wrestling through this, I came home the other night and I said to my wife, I think I finally understand the passage. And she looked at me like, really, now? You know, you've only been studying this thing forever, but... But I think I missed this whole concept that Paul's emphasis, his focus, the reason that he stops here is because he interrupts his own thoughts with the thoughts of his suffering. Now notice Paul's not, he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not saying, oh, poor me, I'm, I'm suffering for the gospel. I'm, I'm imprisoned for Christ. In fact, I think if you were to look through Fox's Book of Martyrs, the story of, of the historic martyrs of the faith, you won't find a single one saying, Woe is me, poor me, persecuted, poor me, though my flesh is being burned off at the stake, though I'm being crucified to mimic and even mock my Lord. You're not going to find these martyrs who were unwilling to recant, who will say, oh man, I sure wish I didn't have to suffer. If I could do this over again, I probably would deny Christ. I wouldn't say these things. No, just the opposite. Paul is actually not only willing to suffer, but he's excited to. In Colossians 1, he says that he's... He is looking forward to, he's excited about filling up in his own flesh whatever remains from the sufferings of Christ. Whatever else needs to be done for the sake of the church, whatever other suffering there might be to get the gospel out, bring it on. I just want people to see Jesus. And I fear that we as, if I may, first world Christians, have gotten so comfortable in our heated and air-conditioned sanctuaries, in our respect historically in the community, that we're afraid of persecution. We think somehow it doesn't fit. And yet, our Lord Himself said in John 15, 18, keep in mind if the world hates you, it hated me first. The student's not above his teacher. If the world doesn't hate you, you must not look much like Jesus. Paul writes to Timothy, who later on will be the pastor of this church at Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says that all who want to live for Christ are going to be persecuted. It's not a maybe. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be opposed by the world. Just the same way that darkness always opposes the light. There is no escape from it. If we are not at some point facing the persecution of the world, then in all likelihood we are not reflecting Christ. And yet, in the same way. In Romans 8.18, Paul says, these sufferings we're going through now, psh, this is light, temporary stuff. Come on, really? 
We have a glory in Christ in eternity that far outweighs all of this. So, verse 13, don't, don't be discouraged by my sufferings. They're your glory. Paul's not discouraged. I think maybe he's considering, wait, when they, when they think about the fact that I'm a prisoner for the, for the gospel, they may shrink back, and I need to address this. Maybe he's recognizing that it's very common for people even now, as it was then, to see suffering as a sign that God's favor is not upon you. We have many who will teach that God loves you and He wants you to be happy and He wants you to live your best life now. Let me just tell you, if you're living your best life now, that means you're not going to heaven. Because heaven is better. For the Christian, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. For the unbeliever who rejects Christ ultimately... This is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. So we need to recognize that God is not interested right now in your temporal happiness. That doesn't mean that He wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be sad. He wants you to, to go through difficult things just because He wants to punk you. That's not how this works. But the sculptor, as he chisels the stone, recognizes that whatever that chisel might cost the stone, is worth it to shape the masterpiece. God is doing that in His church now. A friend mentioned to me yesterday, I think we're being sifted. And I suggest that we need more sifting. Apart from the persecution of the church, we get comfortable and our faith becomes a fake thing. How do you know if it's real? When it costs you something. Habitat for Humanity, when they build houses, require something they call sweat equity. If I just give you a house, you don't get it. But if you have to sweat into this house, that investment costs you. And you learn something. When I do uh, weddings for people, I, I charge a fee, not because that fee means anything one way or another, but if, they don't, if I'm more invested in your wedding than you are, we got a problem. Something's got to hurt a little bit for us to get serious. The reality of persecution of the church is not that it's something we avoid or something that we should avoid. In fact, at a point in the early church, in the, in the first couple of centuries, as persecution began to grow, and the, the church began to recognize that this persecution was part of it, the priests and the leaders had to actually teach people, had to actually instruct people not to go out of their way to try to get persecuted. Don't go put yourself in a position to try to be executed and martyred. God wants you here doing His work. Don't shy away from it, but stop running to it. Do the work. We're on the opposite end of that. Paul says, the world opposes the gospel, but the glory outweighs the cost. Secondly, we see in the, in the next set of verses here, verses 2 to 5, that this mystery of the gospel is long concealed, but now revealed in Christ. Notice this, God's master plan has never changed, but it remained veiled until the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation is a theological word for putting on flesh. Until Christ, the Messiah, was born in the flesh, came to earth to bring in the kingdom of God, to preach repentance, and to preach grace. All that God had been doing never changed. It was always the same, but it was veiled. 
It was concealed. It was behind the scenes as God was always doing things on His side of the curtain that we didn't see. It hadn't changed, but it remained veiled until the incarnation of Christ. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 33, 3, the prophet says, Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. God wanted to reveal Himself even then. God's mighty working in His people was always pointing to Christ. And those who would seek Him, He longed to reveal it to. One of my many favorite New Testament passages, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul, same guy that's writing here, says to the church at Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, this mystery revealed in Christ, the good news that God is pouring out His grace through Christ, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That everyone who believes is a really big point he's making. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God never, never offered life through the law. Obedience was for His people. The Gentiles were accountable for their disobedience. But God gave the law to those who belonged to Him. Even then, the law, the obedience, apart from faith, meant nothing. So much so that when Israel, still offering their sacrifices and following the ceremonies in the temple, but far from God in their hearts, when they were still offering but not walking with Him, He said through the prophets, Get your stinking ceremonies out of here. Your worship is like the stench of death in my nostrils. I hate your sacrifices. God had commanded them. But apart from faith, they were worthless. As He had always said, the just shall live by His faith. In John chapter 5, verses 39-40, to 40, Jesus talking to the Pharisees there, says, hey, listen, you follow the Scriptures, thinking that in the Scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet, you will find life. But they bear witness to me. This was the problem. Those who should have seen it, who should have been able to recognize the fulfillment of the prophecies, the fulfillment of all God had planned, His revealing of the mystery that had been hidden, not impossible to understand, but veiled, they did not recognize it because their hearts were hard. It was not hard to find. It was everywhere. But their hearts were hard. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're in Ephesians, you're going to turn to the right. The books get kind of skinny back there. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. First Peter chapter 1. Man, I would love to read this whole section, but I'm not. No, really, I'm not. But we're going to start with verse 10. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12. <clears throat> Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, speaking of the gospel, the salvation of our souls through Jesus Christ, concerning this salvation, the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the messiah and the glories that would follow now think about that for a second the spirit of christ 
at work in the Old Testament prophets because Christ is eternal. Christ existed before creation. He was not created. He was God himself. And the Spirit of Christ in them, the Holy Spirit moving in these prophets, pointing forward to the incarnation of Christ and the gospel, the good news, that by grace we could be saved. Through faith, not of ourselves, that's the gift of God, not of works, so no one could boast. This good news was already at work and present in the Old Testament prophets, but they couldn't see it. They searched, they knew that grace was coming, they knew that Messiah would suffer. Later, those who should have known failed to heed that. They looked at Isaiah 53 and said, wow, this, this suffering servant, this Messiah who will die for the sins of the people and save many, even Gentiles, we got to know more about this. And they longed to look into it. They searched. Notice verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Check this one out. Even angels long to look into these things. Do you realize that even the angels didn't get it? They knew God was working His great plan, that He always had this overarching plan, that He was redeeming mankind, but even angels couldn't grasp what that meant. They could not foresee what Jesus would do for us unthinkable even to the holy angels if it's unthinkable to the holy angels how much more so to the unholy angels those who fell from heaven satan and his legions so while the devil knows the bible far better than i do while the devil knows that there is one god and shudders he could not conceive of this selfless love demonstrated by Christ on the cross. For sinners. Why not? Because the devil sure wouldn't have done that. That love is the love of God. We'll see in just a moment the significance that angels and demons wish they could understand, but couldn't. Long concealed, now revealed, God's master plan has never changed, but it remained veiled until the incarnation of Christ. Notice also that Paul speaks of the reality that we are together through the gospel. Look at verse 6. We are together through the gospel. Verse 6 of Ephesians 3, in case you're still in, in 1 Peter. This mystery, this mystery that has been concealed, now revealed in Christ, this mystery is that through the gospel, the gospel means good news, through the good news, the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now this is a point that Paul has been making from the very beginning, from chapter 1, that God reached in, he chose us, He adopted us, He predestined us to be conformed to His likeness. All of us together, Jew and Gentile alike. Chapter 2, we, we looked at last week, He really developed this idea in the second half of chapter 2 that, that in Christ, the one body, the one Christ, tore down the dividing wall between us and God in His death on the cross. And he tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in making the grace of God available to all. So that all are alike joined to Christ by grace through faith. There is no other way. You don't get to be in the body of Christ because you grew up in the church, because you grew up in Israel, because you memorized a bunch of verses, or you could sing a bunch of Sunday school songs, because you went to VBS when you were a kid, because you are a pastor. You don't get in on your background. You get in on the back that was scarred for you. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ includes all believers equally in the grace of God. We are together through the gospel, notice, because the gospel of Jesus Christ includes all believers equally in the grace of God. That's the beauty of verse 6. That's the mystery that's revealed. The reason it was difficult to see in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the focus was on Israel. Even though God called Israel to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. God was revealing himself through Israel, but in our humanness, in our sinfulness, we have a tendency to look for earthly divisions. It became an us and them thing. That's the kind of thinking that leads to bigotry, partiality, and racism. When we see that type of thing in Israel, the focus that God gave them was never where you were born, but who you belong to. Jews were the people of God, not because they were born of Abraham, although it was part of God's covenant with Abraham, but because they belonged to the faith of Abraham, because they trusted the one true living God and obeyed him. They belonged in the family as people of the covenant. When they were commanded not to marry with with people from other nations, don't let your men intermarry with these foreign women, the focus on these foreign women had nothing to do with ethnicity or nationality. Let me say that again. It had nothing to do with ethnicity or nationality. There is zero support in Scripture for any type of racial purity idea. That does not exist. There's one race, Adam's race. And we are reborn into the race of Christ. So the difference then and now was not your blood, but your faith. Who do you belong to? The gospel of Jesus Christ includes all believers equally in the grace of God. In Galatians 3, 26-29, he says the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. In Genesis 12, 3, in the Old Testament, before we ever get to the incarnation of Christ, the very beginning here of Israel. Israel doesn't exist yet. There are no Jews. There are no Gentiles. It's just people. And God calls Abram out, he'll later call him Abraham, calls him out from his his pagan home in the land of Ur. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great nation. And all people will be blessed through you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And all peoples will be blessed through you. That's a reference to the seed of Christ in Abraham. Jesus comes from Abraham's line and in Christ all people have access to the grace of God. This was always the plan. Isaiah 49.6, the Lord said, it's too small a thing for you to give my word only to Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the nations that everyone would have access to the gospel. There's a verse in Daniel 7.14. Now, when we think of Daniel 7, we often think of the prophecies of the end times, and rightly so, because Daniel receives a vision. And God is unfolding for him mysteries that Daniel cannot comprehend. Things that are going to happen, kingdoms that will rise and fall, leading up even to the judgment that will come in the final days. We are in that timeline. But notice... In Daniel 7, verse 14, this is from the English Standard Version. Having seen a a vision of the Ancient of Days who has come, he says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, mark this well, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. 
The picture we see in Revelation 13.8 is all nations gathered before the throne of God. All who are written in the Lamb's book of life from every nation equal in standing before God. Paul speaks to them about being encouraged amid suffering, about this wonderful mystery of the gospel which was long concealed, now revealed in Christ. And the fact that the gospel of Christ includes all believers equally in the grace of God. We are together through the gospel. And he goes on to talk about his own ministry in verses 7 to 9. He's bringing the thought back. Remember, this started with him recognizing, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. I am in prison because I'm preaching the gospel. I'm bringing Christ to you. And it's not the Romans that imprisoned him. It was the Jews, the people of God. Now, he is under house arrest by the Romans because that was the method, the tool that the Jewish leaders used. Now, when I say the people of God, don't be confused. The true people of God were those Jews who received Christ and the Gentiles who received Christ. But those who wore the jersey but weren't on the team led to this persecution. And Paul talks now about his own his own ministry. Look at verses 7 to 9. Having talked through this mystery that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus, he then says, I became, <clears throat> I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Now that term servant there could easily be translated slave. I became a slave of this gospel. I became a servant of this gospel. I became compelled to obey and to work for this gospel by the gift of God's grace. His enslavement to the gospel, he says, is a gift. Not so much the gift of preaching, the gift of having special abilities. Yes, that. He'll talk about that in chapter 4. But he's not mentioning that here he's talking about the opportunity the assignment that he was given to preach the gospel to the gentiles is a gift that makes him a slave it's a gift of god's grace and it's given me he says i became a servant of this gospel by the gift of god's grace given me through the working of his power god is at work he's made a big deal about that so far chapter one is all about god doing all of the saving that gets done it's all from God. It's not from us. It's only from God. Chapter 2, he talks about the, the work that God has done. It's all grace. It's all God. But when he mentions earlier the power of God, the hope that we have in this power of God in the church, it's like the working of his mighty strength that he exerted in raising Christ from the dead. That same power is at work in Paul here. He goes on to say in verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this, of this mystery. You might plug in your mind their stewardship the plan, the stewardship, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Paul recognizes his own sinfulness. He refers to himself in a few places in this way. I'm, and I'm the least. I'm the least of all apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the people of God. And he still carries that weight in his mind. He has been forgiven of it. And this verse is a demonstration of that. Not only has he been forgiven, not because he's earned his way out of it, but by the grace of God, God says, listen, Paul, your past is your past. By my grace, I'm calling you 
to take this message to those outside of Israel, to the outsiders who will never hear it, to the outcasts, the downtrodden. We see Jesus in, in the book of John, the first real uh, public ministry thing that we see from him here in chapter 4 is him running into a woman who's not just a woman and, and therefore a second-class citizen in many places in the Middle East, but a Samaritan dog, a half-breed. She doesn't fit. A Jew would never talk to her. And it kind of shocks her. But Jesus talks to her and says, Woman, let me tell you about living water. This, this well, it's going to leave you thirsty. But the water I give, that's a whole other thing. Jesus is giving Paul the grace to allow Paul then to take the message to the outsiders, Paul, who was so Jewish, he was so strong in the law that he couldn't tolerate Christians, even overseeing their persecution and martyrdom. And God lets him in on this. He said, I'm, I'm going to put you to work, son. Notice this. Those who have been changed by the gospel long to share it with others. Those who have been changed by the gospel long to share it with others. Let me ask you, do you long to tell people about Jesus? Do you desperately, passionately, earnestly long to see the people around you, especially those you love, come to Christ and be moved from death to life? Because if that's not a passion for you, then maybe you don't get it yet. Maybe you don't understand what is at stake. Paul understands. He became a servant of this gospel because once he embraced the gospel, once he received this grace, it's like, i got to tell everybody. I can't keep my mouth shut about this. And from that moment on, it didn't matter why they told him not to talk about Jesus they could never stop him from talking about Jesus. The church gathered, even when they were told not to gather. And they went to jail for it. And they sang praises in jail. And they thanked God for the blessing of allowing them to suffer for the name. The honor of suffering for Christ why was it such an honor? Because once I know, i got to go. So that everybody else can know too. We're just beggars who have found bread. And once I've found that bread, how selfish to keep it to myself. Those who have been changed by the gospel long to share it with others. Peter and John in Acts 4.20 said, we, we can't, no matter what you tell us, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the commands of the government are. You're going to tell us to stop preaching about Jesus? Dude, listen, I want to obey you, but seriously, seriously, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. It's too real. This is real life. And when we get the reality of this, when we align our minds with the reality of God, that this is not some religious feeling that we muster up in ourselves so that we can fit in to the right kind of group so that maybe God can accept us or so that we can have a better life in this world, when we get past all of that low-level, cheap stuff, and we realize the reality of eternity with God, and the grace that the holy creator of the universe shows to us because he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son to die for a wretch like me, a rebel, a criminal, to take my sin that I deserve to pay for, and I can only pay with death. If I get that, if I understand that, how can I keep silent? It's like a fire shut up in the bones. 
And pretty soon, when I get serious about this, when I start to realize that every single person I know is either going to heaven or hell, and I know how they can make that right, then pretty soon every single thing that I do becomes an opportunity to reflect the reality of Christ through that relationship. Work, school, coaching, fun, vacation, it doesn't matter. Talk to the Uber driver. It doesn't matter. Somebody here needs to hear about Jesus. And sometimes I have the opportunity to say that outright. And sometimes I don't have the opportunity to say it yet, but I can still show it. And I earn the right to say it by the way that I show it. Our words carry as much weight as the authority of our relationship allows. When people don't respect you as a Christ follower, they may not like it. They may not like you. They may hate Jesus. But when they see the consistency of the gospel in your life, they respect you enough to give a hearing. So that when things hit the fan, and they always eventually do, and I don't know where else to turn, I said, man, that Jesus freak, man, he, he so got on my nerves before, but he doesn't seem to be rattled by the stuff going on. He was really passionate about who should get elected, and it didn't go his way. But he's acting with grace and respect. Still standing by convictions, but doing it in such a loving way that I feel like, there's a conversation we need to have here. How many of you know that politics are not going to get you into heaven? Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. He's the Son of God. And He died in our place so that we can freely receive from Him grace, mercy, He's the saving one. His grace is enough to fix everything that is wrong. And in the end, if we're on his team, we win. And if we're not, we eternally lose. How could I keep that to myself? Those who have been changed by the gospel long to share it with others. Verses 10 through 11 talk about God's wisdom on display. As we look at these verses, we see in them that the full beauty of God's master plan is showcased in the church. The full beauty of God's master plan is showcased in the church having laid out this, this beautiful ministry of preaching and making plain the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says in verse 10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to His eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize that by being the church, by living out a new life in Christ, the unity of God's people, the holiness of the church, the love of Christ in us for one another, especially with real people who get on our nerves, that is our opportunity, check this out now, to instruct the angels and the demons. Remember earlier when Peter mentioned that even angels long to look into these things? And we talked about the fact that the devil didn't get it. Angels didn't get it. In the church, they all get it. 
They get to see in us what God has always been doing. This mystery that was concealed and is revealed in Christ is displayed manifestly in us. Therefore, when we get it wrong, the weight of that is an earthquake through the universe. When we get marriage, sexuality, and family wrong, especially in the church, we are blaspheming God. We are distorting the image of who He is. When we who claim Christ have partiality toward people, we look at one person as better than another because they've, maybe they've got some more money than the other person. They can benefit us more than the other person. Or they're from a people group that we identify with when we see bigotry and partiality in the church, we distort the image of God and blaspheme Him. How good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Our body life together is the declaration of God's glory, of His master plan, His manifold wisdom for all in heaven and on earth to see that God is great and greatly to be praised. The full beauty of God's master plan is showcased in the church you can jot down 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have to turn there now, but I would invite you to take a look there to see Paul talking to the Corinthian church about how God's glory is revealed and displayed in us. Scan through the book of Acts. The entire book of Acts is a picture of God's glory on display in the church. God's manifold wisdom. His magnificent master plan. His grace to us, to the praise of His glory. Lastly, let's notice in verse 12, the freedom and confidence that we have in Christ. In verse 12, Paul, in asking them, uh, prior to asking them about uh, not being discouraged, he says, in Him, in Christ, and through faith in Christ, we, including himself, the Jews, the Gentiles, the insiders, the outsiders, all who believe in Christ, all the redeemed people of God, his church, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence we may approach God with freedom and confidence. How many of you know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? I wrestled with that for a long time. I remember as a, as a young person thinking, fearing God, am I supposed to be afraid of God? And I remember learning in Sunday school, well, that's really about being reverent toward God. It's, it's a holy reverence. And the more I look at the scriptures, the more I see, no, it's not. It's not that I'm supposed to be afraid of God. It's that if I see God, I have no choice but to be terrified, dumbstruck, as if I were dead because of His holiness and my unholiness. If you have any doubt about that, look at every single encounter with God in Scripture. Always. But, but, don't miss what the proverb says. It's the beginning of wisdom. You see, when we know God, we don't stay in the fear of God because when God is the biggest, to borrow from the very first VeggieTales episode ever, when we recognize that God is the biggest, that's one thing. That's a reason to fear because He is majestic and holy and all-powerful. But when I am His child, chosen, adopted by grace, and I belong to Him, that I recognize that not only is He the biggest, but He is on my side. Amen. 
I don't stay in that fear. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Fear is the natural reaction of the natural person to the natural holiness of God. Love is the character of God. Grace is the character of God displayed in Jesus Christ so that by this good news, you and I can no longer fear God, but to approach the throne, which is instant death for anyone with any sin at any point ever. That's why nobody got to enter the Holy of Holies, except for the priest once a year after atoning for his own sin. Any sin means death in approaching the throne of God. But we, in Christ, can approach Him with freedom and confidence. Romans 5.2 says that through Christ we have access to God. Hebrews 10.20 is a picture of the fact that Jesus, when He died, tore the veil of the temple that separated that holy of holies so that no one would go in. And He tore the veil from top to bottom so that we have intimate access to God at all times. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Christ we have freedom and confidence. Notice this, God's grace to all of His children in Christ, means that all believers have unlimited, intimate access to our Father. All believers have unlimited, intimate access to our Father. What a beautiful picture. Some of you didn't have a Father that gave you that kind of access. I'm sorry. But your Heavenly Father is not like your earthly father. When you are His child, you are His priority. For His glory, He pours out His grace on us. So that no matter who you are, no matter what sins you had in your past, Jesus, in dying for them and giving you God's grace, has made you one with Himself. Therefore, you are as much a child of God as Jesus Himself is, by God's gracious adoption. This is power. Power to approach the throne of God, not as a subject before the king, but as a child running to daddy. What beauty, what grace, what comfort there is in knowing this. If you are not in that spot where you know that you are a child of God by His grace, I would invite you today to just take hold of this. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to say a particular prayer with special words. It's as simple as, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. Recognizing your sin separates you from God, but Jesus paid the price for all of it, the full price, to make us one with Him so that we can approach the throne with freedom and confidence. If you have received Him by faith, Jesus says you're born again. You're a new creature. Now walk like it. We who belong to Him have the privilege and the responsibility of telling everybody else about Him so that those who are dead may be brought to life by the Spirit of God. Let's wrap this up. God's master plan is revealed in Christ and displayed in the church with present suffering but lasting glory. The New Testament does not present a new religion. It's not that. Instead, it's the revealing of God's master plan that He was working out behind the scenes from the beginning. Forget about religion. This is about reality. 
God has been, is, and will be redeeming all things, reconciling all things to himself in Christ. And he privileges us to be a part of that. The prophets of old saw only a glimpse. We have it made clear in Christ. The gospel saves us by God's grace when we believe and embrace it, no matter who we are. This unites all believers as one church, one family in Christ, so that the fullness of God's wisdom can be displayed. Be assured that the world opposes it, but the glory far outweighs the suffering. So let us not hesitate. Let us never stop boldly declaring the truth that God offers real life in Jesus Christ by His grace. For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for revealing the mystery of Your plan in Christ to us. Thank You for offering Your grace that we don't have to be outsiders any longer. Thank You for Your sovereign mercy to us that because of Your Spirit and Your intervention in our hearts to, to change the hard heart in us to a receptive heart of flesh, You have chosen us and adopted us and made us Yours according to Your plan to bring all things together under Your kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. Lord, if we know this, Father, make us uncomfortable until we share it with others. Don't allow us to sit and soak and be consumer Christians. Lord, I don't think as I read your word that there's any such thing. Send us out. Send us out, Lord, into the world to make you known. We pray this in the name of the one who gave himself for us, your son Jesus Christ. Amen.